Amen. Let me tell you, it is incredible to hear uh, how the rooms sing together <laughs> and to encourage one another. Uh, believe me, there's nothing that warms uh, a pastor's heart more than hearing the voices uh, of the church sing together. Uh, by now, you probably know what I'm about to say. Open up your Bibles to where? The book of Genesis and find chapter 23. Chapter 23, we're going to read a little bit from 22, but we'll spend the majority of our time in chapter 23. Genesis, we'll begin reading in chapter, tw chapter 22, verse 20. The Word of God says, now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Camul the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethul. Bethul fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, moreover his concubine, whose name was Ramay, bore Teba, Gehom, Tehash, and Meachah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah and of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burial place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear me, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zahor, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let, me get, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he said to, to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights a current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees 
that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gates of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that was in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of God. The book of Ecclesiastes is an absolutely breathtaking book, and I've had the pleasure of studying it and even preaching through it before, and I hope to do it again at some point in my lifetime because it's absolutely astounding. It's part of the wisdom literature written by Solomon, and one of the reasons Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes was to create in us humility and obedience to God's word. And it was written, ultimately, to reshape our perspective on the world. Look what what Ecclesiastes says. This is from the pen of Solomon. He says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, Solomon tells us that funerals are better than birthday parties. (laughs) Pretty dark stuff, isn't it? I can almost imagine Solomon, you can almost imagine him with all these dark clothes and this dark makeup, listening to this loud, sad music. But beyond it all, Solomon has a point in the grand perspective of things. Funerals teach us much more than celebrations do, because in funerals, we come face to face with the end of us all, and the living should lay that to heart. And today we encounter a moment in the life of Abraham that we should all lay to heart. We encounter the death of Sarah, his wife. And ultimately, I believe this text is here to teach us two things, ultimately. First, through the example of Abraham, we learn how to live. And then through the example of Sarah, we learn how to die. And there's no greater lessons we could learn than that. And Abraham With his example here, we learn how to live. Specifically, we begin by seeing that Abraham lived by faith. Abraham lived by faith. We had just come off of last week on Easter Sunday looking at Genesis 22 and how this almost sacrifice of Isaac occurred. And and Abraham received him back. We saw how this giving of a promised son pointed toward a day when God would give us his promised son in the person of Jesus for our sins. And Isaac was, in a manner of speaking, received back from the dead, just as Jesus was literally raised from the dead. And then the chapter kind of ends almost anticlimactically, doesn't it? It ends with, as we should expect in the book of Genesis, another genealogy. And here's what we see there, chapter 22, verse 20 to 24. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your your brother Nahor. And then it goes on to give these names. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brothers, Camuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, Bethuel. If anybody's looking for baby names, I've given them to you. There's several if you've been thinking about those, these, here's the point. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. 
Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Meaka. So there's, there's a bunch of names here, but the point, what should stand out to us, is the contrast between Nahor and Milcah and Abraham and Sarah. Nahor was Abraham's brother, and he had, count them, eight kids through his wife Milcah and four through a concubine. He had 12 sons, and 12 nations were ultimately going to come through him, while Abraham only had one son through Sarah and one surprise son through Hagar. And so from the world's point of view, it, it would appear that Nahor is the blessed brother. It would appear that Nahor has it all together while Abraham is some forgotten nobody. And yet, Abraham's life should teach us that abundance isn't always blessing. Having an abundance of things isn't always a sign that God is with you. Nahor looks blessed by worldly sight, but through the eyes of faith, it's Abraham who was the blessed brother. Nahor had tons of kids, and it's implied by that, tons of earthly possessions, and yet Abraham would be called blessed. He only had two sons. One of the sons he hardly ever got to see because the mother had left for Egypt, and the other one he almost sacrificed on Mount Moriah, and then he gets word, hey, your brother's doing pretty well. Abraham's still a nomad here sort of wandering from place to place with simply a promise of land. And he, he, again, he has no land and a promised son that, again, he almost sacrificed just a little bit ago. He doesn't seem to be the sort of guy that we would be considered blessed or the best or the top of the class. But God doesn't judge the way we do. Look what the prophet Samuel, look what God said to the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Ultimately, Nahor had all this stuff, but there is no indication that he knew the Lord. We don't hear anything positive about him knowing the Lord. In fact, if we, if we recall and remember, Abraham was actually from a pagan family. And so it's likely Nahor just followed right along with the rest of the paganism of the family. And while Nahor may have had everything we believe goes along with God's blessing... Abraham was the one who would receive God's blessing. And ultimately, we were told in Genesis 12, would be a fountainhead of blessing to the nations. Abraham teaches us how to live by faith. How to see that true life is found in knowing God and making God known. And that ultimately, this blessing that Abraham would would receive would ultimately be righteousness before God and a relationship with him based on faith alone. Romans 4 tells us that the blessing Abraham enjoyed was his lawlessness forgiven, his sins covered, and his sin not counted against him. He may not have had abundance, but he did have acquittal from his sin. Abraham teaches us how to live by faith that the world may seem to have abundance, but an abundance of things isn't what ultimately makes us blessed by God. It's knowing him. It's being in connection with him. It's a relationship 
to him. But next we learn that Abraham lived with endurance. Abraham lived with endurance. Notice what happens as we jump into chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Consider for a second being Abraham, losing his wife after decades together. And he responds appropriately, mourning and weeping. We need to recognize And sometimes I think the church is really bad about this. We need to allow people to mourn and weep as a response to death. Sure, yes, Sarah was in a better place, but there at the funeral side is probably not the place to remind them of that. I've learned time and time again as a pastor doing visitations that ultimately most of the time what people care, what people remember is often your presence more than your words, except when you say something wrong, then they'll remember your words far more than your presence. And so we need to allow here and recognize that the godly and right response to death is mourning and weeping. We're not to be sort of stoics as if death doesn't bother us. Where the hope of eternal life doesn't mean we don't weep for the dead. I mean, consider Jesus, who... When Lazarus passed, he knew full well that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we get the shortest Bible verse in the whole Bible where we see still, in light of the death of Lazarus, Jesus wept. He wept over the death of his friend and the sting that it created in Lazarus' mother and his family. Believers should mourn the death of others. But we also need to realize that we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Notice, Abraham mourned, but then Abraham rose. Sure, the mourning would continue in his heart, but there comes a time when we have to pick ourselves up and move forward. There comes a time when we in a place where we must live with hurt and live with endurance. So he rises to purchase a burial place in the land of Canaan. And he starts by going to the Hittites and admitting his position. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner and an immigrant among you. You could literally translate this. I am a sitter and a squatter. (laughs) I've been living in this land a long time and I'm a foreigner here And he asks for a place to bury Sarah. He says, hey, I want to purchase a portion, a cave or a field, a portion of this land in order to bury her. And then we get a very fascinating conversation. Look at verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. 
None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zahor, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owes. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a, bury, for a burying place. So we see Abraham has picked out a cave, a place that that was where you would bury folks in those days was in a cave. And, and rather than being given the spot, he desires to purchase it. Then we see a sort of back and forth. This is an example of an ancient Near East business deal here. Look at verse 10, what happens now. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephraim the Hittite, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites and all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. So Abraham ends up purchasing the cave we see for 400 shekels. Now, you probably have a lot of questions, and there's a lot of unknowns that we aren't told in the passage. First, we're not really told how large the field is. Is it one acre? Is it 100 acres? I don't know. We're not told. And we don't fully know exactly how much a shekel was, because if you look in verse 16, shekels were weighed differently among different merchants at different times. But consider this for considerable value here. Back in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham received a thousand pieces of silver from Abimelech for restitution when Abimelech stole Sarah. But a a piece of silver isn't exactly a shekel because a shekel was around half an ounce or so of silver. (coughs) And so in Exodus 21.32, we're told that an ox that was killed was to be paid back for about 30 shekels. So here we see a shekel being about a half an ounce that Abraham is paying for this cave with about 50 pounds of silver or what would have been equivalent to about 13 livestock. I looked earlier this week and the cost of silver is about $25 an ounce. That was earlier in this week. I don't know the exact number right now. So the cave in modern day terms with the field and everything would have been about $1,250. But what this looked like to Abraham, we simply aren't sure. But regardless, the chapter ends with this summary. Look at verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees 
that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So we see Abraham lives with endurance and he rises up and he makes these burial arrangements for his wife. But in the midst of all of this negotiations and the burial of Sarah, if we get so caught up in those details, we may have missed the promise of God. We may have missed that God was keeping his word to Abraham here because Abraham now owns a portion of land in the land that God promised to give to him. He promised to give, the, to give a nation to Abraham, to give him offspring, and to give him a land, the land of Canaan, and to give him blessing. And Abraham now has a son. He has at least some real estate in the land of promise where Sarah's buried, and he was being a blessing to the nations. Did you notice how these foreign, this other foreign nation, these Hittites, said, Abraham, you are a prince of God. They could recognize the calling of God on his life as a prophet. All of the promises of God begin to converge here, and we begin to get a small hint, a small little amen to all of God's promises. Abraham now owns a field in the land that would belong to him and to his offspring. But God's promise doesn't come without pain. God's promise wouldn't come to Abraham without suffering and pain. So Abraham teaches us how to live. He lived by faith. He lived with endurance. And finally, we need to see that Abraham lived honestly. Abraham lived honestly. Notice, he would rather have spent money for the land than have owed something to the Hittites. He didn't want to be put in a situation of owing someone else or being dependent upon the charity of another nation. He is living out what Paul calls all believers in the New Testament to imitate. This in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look what Paul says. He says, Believers, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He desired, God desires for us to not be dependent on other people. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. God's people are are not to live owing other people. We're to be people who don't just go into debt and then not pay our debts. No, we're told, and Paul's pretty frank here, that if you will not work, you will not eat. Here's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, Not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such people we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul here isn't condemning retirement and he isn't speaking to those who might have various disabilities, but he is laying out a general principle that the Christian thing to do, what believers need to do is get a job, seek independence, stay out of other people's business and glorify God while they do it. It's not a popular message in our day, but that's what Paul says we are to do, to work hard and to work honestly for the glory of God. And this is what Abraham does here. Abraham could have easily tried to get this field through some sort of backroom deal. We're told in verse 10 that this business deal took place in the gate of the city. And we learn that in, in these ancient Near East deals, in the gate of the city was where all of this happened. It was the place of commerce and business. And we see echoed three times in verses 11 to 13 that all of this took place in the sight of all the people. In these gates, there were going to be tons of witnesses and all could come forward and sort of look at this and observe this and speak into this. Think almost like a giant public auction in the ancient world here. There's all these witnesses as to how this was going to go. So Abraham went out of his way to do this according to the custom of the people. And he went out of his way to have witnesses and to do this with honesty, not with cunning or sneaking around, which was something Abraham often tried to do, didn't he? He often tried to sneak and tell half-truths, and he did that with, with Pharaoh and with Abimelech. But here, he, he does this honestly and openly. And God commands us to work hard and to work honestly. And he doesn't just mean that that happens when we come into this building, but rather it's meant to impact how we dwell in the world. This passage would lead us to ask, are we always looking for a way to save or to make a buck, even if it isn't upfront or honest? It has us to consider, do we care more about our integrity or about our bottom line? Abraham teaches us the value of honesty over what might be maximized profits. He teaches us how to live well, to live by faith, to live with endurance, and to live honestly. But we also need to consider the example of Sarah, because from Sarah, we learn how to die. Abraham teaches us how to live, but Sarah teaches us how to die. Let me tell you this. Every funeral you have ever attended or will ever attend preaches a sermon long before the minister ever gets up. There's a message loudly sent, and Sarah's is no different. What can we learn if we were to be an observer here at the burial of Sarah? What do we learn? What's the message? What's the sermon being preached? Well, we note first that Sarah died in faith. Sarah died in faith. And I don't think we give Sarah enough credit. There's a commentary series I'm reading on Genesis by a guy named Gordon Winham, and he has a two-volume commentary on Genesis. And look what he has to say. I really, this stuck out to me this week. After Eve, Sarah is the first woman of importance to tread the stage of Genesis. From Cain to Babel, 
the primeval history preserves an almost exclusively male orientation. Women are rarely mentioned except as, ad, as adjuncts to their husbands. But with Sarah, we meet a woman of heroic proportions, worthy grandmother of the nation of Israel. Her life was far from easy. She suffered the shame of childlessness till she was 90. Twice she was trapped in a foreign king's harem by her husband's unbelieving folly. Twice she was provoked beyond the breaking point by her slave girl Hagar or her son Ishmael. Once she had seen her own son leave to be sacrificed by his father. From the way her husband treated her sometimes, one might even wonder whether he really cared about his wife at all. Was he not more interested in preserving his own skin and sometimes in serving God? This quote recalls for us the incredible faith of Sarah. Everything Abraham has been through, this whole journey we've been on, she's been right beside him. She was there in his moments of faithlessness and sin. But even in the midst of all of that, she is truly the mother of our faith, the same way Abraham is called, the father of our faith. Just consider Hebrews 11 lists all of these heroes of the faith, and among them, Sarah is mentioned. And we see this, that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah is buried in the land of promise. And even her gravesite displays that she believed the promise given to Abraham because she is buried there with the hope of resurrection. It's important to note that it's pretty unique in the history of the world to bury people in the ground. Burial actually came about from belief in the fact that the body would rise again and that that future resurrection from the dead is something that the Bible teaches us. It comes from particularly a biblical view of the world that we would bury people in the ground with hopes that one day they will rise Again, and that's exactly what we confess as Christians. Abraham knew and Sarah knew that her body would rise again and she wanted to rise again and dwell in the land that was promised to her husband. Sarah died in faith. And friends, we need to know and trust by faith there's going to be a day when East End Cemetery will be empty. Completely empty, every grave opened, and what stands as memorials for the deceased will no longer be needed because we're told the dead will be raised, the perishable will put on imperishable, the mortal will clothe themselves in immortality. Sarah died in faith, believing this promise of God. But will that be said of you? Sarah died in faith, but Sarah also died faithful. Sarah also died faithful, particularly faithful to her, to her husband. Consider this. This week we saw news that, 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 were, that was honoring Prince Philip, who passed away at 99. And the news made this huge deal about how he was faithful to his wife, Queen Elizabeth, for 70 years of marriage. One, it's strange to see the mainstream media celebrating marriage That's something I I think I had to pause and sort of consider. But we don't often give honor 
where it's due for things like that. Think about it. Sarah may have been beside Abraham even longer. She died at 127, and we're not totally sure when exactly they got married, but he could have, could have been a much longer time than even Philip and Elizabeth were together. This is a big deal. And it isn't ultimately that we will be remembered for what we believed, but it's far more that we'll be remembered for how we lived. And even Abraham, when he wasn't faithful to her, she remained by his side and loved him and trusted him. And this is something to be commended. In fact, First Peter, the apostle Peter, remembers Sarah and holds her up as a, as a, as a godly woman for other women to emulate. Look what 1 Peter 3 here says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Here it is. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So Peter here commends Sarah among holy women who hoped in God, who adorned herself, not in the latest fashions or trends, but rather in quiet, humble service. And she's remembered here for the way she loved her husband, the way she followed his lead, the way she respected him. That term, Lord, there freaks us out, but that's sort of the way we would use the term sir or a term of respect there in the ancient world. And now Peter, let me tell you, he has got a lot more to say to husbands that we can look at in the future, but here Sarah provides for us an incredible example for young women. Hear me, if you're a young woman here today looking for a role model, and believe me, it's hard to find those if you go on Instagram out there. It is hard to find those role models to look up to. Seek not to get the most likes on social media, but rather be like Sarah and seek to honor God. The role that, that Sarah's life should shout is don't, ultim- is don't live your life to get the attention of, of, of men, but rather to save yourself for a man who's worth giving your heart and your whole self to. It says, women looking for a role model, consider the mother of the faithful. Or consider, look around here and see the number of godly women we have here who have shown themselves through years of service, to, to God's people, to Jesus, and to their families. Consider a number of women in this congregation who embody this sort of godly femininity of Sarah. Sarah dies in faith. Sarah dies faithful to her husband. And finally, I want to see this. Sarah died without fear. Sarah died without fear. Notice this, 1 Peter 3, 6. Here's how Peter ends this. He says, in you believer, are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Hear this. Sarah is an example of a fearless life. 
that godly femininity is fearless, and it's fearless, notice, about doing good. It looks boldly toward the future with faith, knowing who holds the future. It looks forward, devoted to serving God rather than concerned about the opinions of the world. Sarah, like Abraham, is given to us as an example of godly living. Look, for example, at Isaiah 51. The prophet Isaiah says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and from the And from the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was not but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Look what what Isaiah says. Look to Abraham and look to Sarah. Though remembered for her quiet and gentle soul, remember she would birth a nation. What will you be remembered for? In your life, will you live a life like Abraham? And in your death, will you die like Sarah? And the whole passage should really lead us to ask a question. What is our hope in life and death? Consider this. All of us await the same fate as Sarah. A grave. Abraham's going to die in just two chapters. In chapter 25, All of us have death awaiting us. And John Piper famously said that history is a conveyor belt of corpses. Dark, but true. Something we often try to avoid. We try to numb this idea that, that with with this idea that that this life is, is all there is. But consider this. Even Jesus Christ, in order to save us from sin and death, didn't get to skip the grave. But he did get to walk out of it. He didn't get to skip the grave, but he did get to conquer death and and resurrect on the third day. And because of Jesus' death, we don't have to suffer eternal death after we die. And because of his resurrection, we can have confidence in our own future resurrection. Because Jesus died and rose, this cave isn't the end for Sarah And because of Jesus' empty tomb, the grave won't be the end for you either. All of us were created to live forever. And all of us are going to die and stand before a holy God in judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Let me close by just being completely frank with you here. All of us will live forever in heaven or in hell. Some of us with eternal life with God, others in a place of eternal death under the judgment of God. And the Bible tells us that even Abraham and Sarah in all their faithfulness were not good enough to to earn the ability to skip death and get to heaven. They needed a savior as well. Let me ask you, where would you go if you died today? All of us have sinned, broken God's law, and lived woefully short of his holy standard. And this is why Jesus came. In love, Jesus was sent to live a perfect human life, to die in our place on a Roman cross under the punishment of God, and then to rise again three days later to defeat sin death and hell so that forgiveness of sin and eternal life could be extended and received by faith.
Hebrews 2 says it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, all, all, all who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to set us free from the fear and slavery of death. God displayed love and grace toward mankind by offering us forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ. This is the hope that Sarah was buried with. In fact, Abraham and his family would go on to be buried there as well. And this is why for believers, when we go to a believing person's funeral, they're not hopeless gatherings. But they're marked with hopeful tears a celebratory sadness, a sorrow, yet always rejoicing. Because even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they have no evil to fear because surely God's goodness and mercy follow them all the days of their life and they shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, this is the good news that rings out from the grave of Sarah. And does that good news echo out of your life? As well, what sermon will your funeral preach? What will be the message displayed to the world? What is your hope in life and death? If you don't have assurance that you'll stand before God and, and have eternal life, talk to us. This is why Jesus came to die the death we deserved and to rise again in victory so that if you would call upon him right where you are, he can forgive you of your sins and restore you to himself to have new everlasting life. And we'd love to talk more with you about that. You can find me after service up front or at the Connect desk. And we'd love to lead you in what it means to know this Jesus and have hope of eternal life. But it's also a reminder to all of us as believers, have we shared this message with others? Have we proclaimed this good news to our family, our friends, our neighbors? And may we find our life in Jesus' death, and may our hope in death be found in Jesus' life alone. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to respond in worship. I pray you're honored and glorified. I'm thankful that the, gr the grave isn't the end. But Lord, I pray that we would give a serious, heavy reflection to the reality that we will live forever. And that we'll give a serious, heavy reality to what you've done in conquering the grave, in defeating sin, death, and hell on our behalf through your death and resurrection, and that we would trust anew in that message. We would not just trust anew in that message, but that we would trust it so much that we would stake our eternities on it and share it everywhere that we go. I ask, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified as we sing in response to you. Great hope in eternal life through your Son. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand and sing with us.
into gardens You turn bones into armies You turn seas into highways You're the turns our grave into a garden, that there's nowhere that we'll go, even into the very jaws of death where Jesus hasn't gone before us. We close our service with a benediction, a blessing from God's word, this from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.